Broadcasting from occupied territories, or the flea media, it's the Reality Dysfunction Podcast. A space where a diverse group of brown folk from across the nation explore the political experiences and social future of our Chicano Latino community. Control the narrative. Resist the dysfunction. Hey everyone, this is uh, Dr. Ernesto back uh, with another episode of the Reality Dysfunction. I think that you all are going to find this one really interesting. I have two people on the show with me today, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves now. Hi, I'm Alex Lissa, and I'm here in Brooklyn, and I'm really excited about our topic for today. I am too. My name is Lori Lizarraga. I'm a reporter, formerly in Denver. Now I'm in Dallas, where my family is, and I'm so excited to be getting to talk with both of you today on the Reality Dysfunction. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for being here, Lori. <laughs> Like I was telling you earlier, when we were getting ready to to do the episode, your story uh, that ran, I think it was in the Denver Post? Westward. West, oh, that's right, Westworld, that's right. About your experiences at, at newspaper as a TV reporter there uh, were sent to me by um, at least two different people that I know in Denver. And I, I just thought it, that it was really interesting, particularly the way that Westworld uh, picked up the story itself, which I, you know, I would say in my experience was a, is a little unusual. You know, that's the re- one of the reasons why I reached out to you. But what I was really hoping right now is that you could just kind of give uh, everybody that's listening uh, sort of a breakdown of what transpired there. And, you know, we'll, then we'll take it from there. Sure. It was a long process deciding, by the way, where to put the piece and who to partner with on that. But it's not unique for Westward to have those opinion pieces, um, which is one of the reasons that I did approach the editor uh, several weeks before it ended up getting published in Westward. So she was quite open to it. And of course, she wanted receipts, which I provided. But I knew that it would be a pretty good place to start. And it turned out, you know, that it was because they have, you know, this whole opinion section. So that was great. And I'm really appreciative to the editor, Patty Calhoun, because she worked with me and gave me a lot of free reign to write what I wanted to write. What happened at Nine News is unfortunately what I'm learning happens to a lot of people of color in newsrooms across the country. There is a huge push right now and has been, you know, for several years to bring in more diversity into newsrooms, whether that be because face value, you have to meet a quota, or because you're actually interested in what those journalists of color bring. Regardless, I was part of that push in our newsroom to diversify, not just on-air talent, but just people in the newsroom in general. What I found, however, in coming to Nine News and coming to a state like Colorado that is very white, 70% white, I think, is the state breakdown, is that diversity was a value to a certain extent. And instead of sort of deferring to the expertise of my lived experiences and the lived experiences of my Latino colleagues, we were questioned and argued with or barriers were put up every time we tried to move forward or do more in-depth coverage in our newsroom than just, you know, the cookie cutter things. There were stories that I kept finding that I was shocked that we weren't covering or hadn't been covering in depth and consistently. I would say many times that this were happening in a different zip code, we would have reporters on every corner. But because it's happening in this zip code where this demographic is, you know, the the 
majority of the population, we're not as interested. And I'm not sure if that's because of a money factor or because our viewership doesn't particularly come from this demographic of Latinos or our black community or whoever it may be. Um, I'm sure there are reasons that play into that, but it's the stories that we wanna talk about because they're our communities and we care. And so it was difficult to be in a newsroom for two years where I wasn't alone in deeply wanting to go further with our coverage and just getting consistent pushback. They wanted us in the room to talk about the things they wanted to talk about. And when you don't have diversity up and down the decision-making ladder, I realized getting our stories out the door was extremely difficult because we needed buy-in in the pitch room and we just didn't have that. I have a question. So do you think that it was any stories about Latinos or was it, or did they want like the producers, the executive producers, whoever decide what the stories were for her? Was it only particular stories about the Latino community that they wanted to push and anything outside of that was a no? Yeah, I mean, I think we got to do coverage, but like I just spoke about in the piece, there were language barriers or um, stipulations on the outside of getting to report about immigration, for example, that would deter us from even wanting to pursue immigration coverage. So they definitely were open to it. It was just on some days you could and on some days you couldn't. And I don't know if I ever really figured out what the magic formula was to getting it out the door. But again, because we didn't have Latinos, for example, in any sort of upper management position, you really had to defer to the news judgment of our white counterparts who are our managers. And it, if they decide that it's worth talking about today, then okay, we get to. And sometimes they love it. But other times there's consistent coverage that, stories that deserved that consistent coverage. and for whatever reason, they just weren't newsworthy. Mm -hmm. And you had, I mean, you were part of, I mean, what I would call a purge at this, at this radio station. I mean, there were at least, there were three of you that were let go. Did you say within a, in a one month or a two month period? Yeah, a year within each other oh, from within... March, 2020 to March, 2021, the three of us were, you know, let go um, and replaced. The station likes to tell diversity hiring stats, but when you're letting go and replacing, you are not diversifying your staff. Yeah. Uh, you're not adding diversity when all you're doing is meeting a quota. So that was frustrating to see because the fights that we left unwon just went to the new people, to the new women who were coming in and taking our places. Right. And they would have to decide if they wanted to bear this especially seeing what we had been punished with as a result of the fight that we had just, you know, put in two, three years, whatever the case may be. Yeah. And starting from scratch. Yeah. Right. And also concerned about being a new hire and what that means and, you know, well, that, that's, that, and that's totally what I was thinking is that, I mean, really the other, the other piece that you're doing is, and this is what I think, you know, Alex was alluding to, is you're eliminating institutional history, right, of, around that type of struggle. I mean, Alex and I both work in higher education, and I know that I know that we see it all the time, right? They, they, you know, somebody comes, somebody goes, um, and then, uh, but you're absolutely right that uh, that is not diversifying. Replacing is not diversifying. And so, I, yeah, I, I find that that whole um, 
thing uh, really interesting, uh, you know, especially when you were talking about needing buy-in in in the pitch room. And I, I was just wondering if maybe you could kind of explain that process a little bit. I find that most people don't understand the process of the news. And so maybe if you could just talk a little bit about about the pitch room and what happens I, there. I joke a lot about other industries. Like I know what they do in the room. If you weren't in this business, I can't imagine why you would understand you yeah. know, the ins and outs of what goes into putting a story on the news. So um, playing a little inside baseball, talking about a pitch room, but I mean, that really is where it starts in terms of reporters. And I think there is, I don't think there is a lot of knowledge about, you know, the importance of having reporters who really are community oriented, who are very much ingrained in what's going on in the inside baseball of each community, because without us pitching those stories and knowing who to talk to and knowing what's going on um, on a day-to-day basis, you really won't have those stories on TV. That's what makes the reporters so valuable. And I, I think people look to the anchors and think that's the, you know, the all-time position to have on the news. And, and that may be the case for some people, but if you really are looking to tell the stories and, and help define the coverage of your station to give people a platform, to help causes be known to the world outside of the community that they're from, um, you have to be a reporter who is extremely involved with the community. So that's where it starts for us as reporters. We go into, you know, a morning meeting and editorial and we pitch, you know, what we have on our minds to cover for that day, something attainable because we are on a very tight deadline oriented, you know, schedule of getting something on the news every single day by four o'clock or five o'clock, whatever, you know, the time may be whatever show or producer wants to put your story in their show that day. And you do, you, you come either unprepared and get assigned to something because there's always news of the day or you you know you come with ideas about what you would like to cover what deserves coverage what needs a platform whatever the case may be and you you have to believe that you'll be able to turn those interviews get somebody to sit down with you that day at a certain time speak with you about the subject and have that ready to go and on tv by you know whatever the time may be uh which is generally like six or seven hours from that point so you know you've got to do the work and that requires you know, knowing what's going on to be able to say, this is happening today, or this conversation was going on over the weekend, this is worth pushing forward. And from there, like I said, it takes producers interested in putting it in their shows, whatever you're pitching, whatever story may be. And then it, it takes, you know, your manager saying, okay, that's good. We hear it, we like it. Um, like I said, buy-in, we, we wanna see what that would look like in a 90 second package today. Most people, they have a really hard time understanding that whole process. I think that it's important to understand what it is that that you just said. There's so much like unrestrained complaining about about the media, right? And and one of the things that that I find really interesting, people don't really appreciate or understand, you know, how vital a free media is to a functioning democracy, you know, yeah. and, and it goes back to, to what you were just talking about a second ago, which, which I've seen, you know, myself in different newsrooms, and I see it every day, you know, at, at, the, at the college that I work at and, and at other colleges, if everybody that's above us is not a part of our community, when we go in and try to talk to them about this, they do not see 
the the necessity they don't see why it's important to have stories about the latino community and how could you right it's impossible to to care about everything or to know everything i don't know lots of things that are important to the white community or the black community or the asian community or the indigenous community i couldn't possibly because those are not my shared experiences those are not my lived experiences and that's not my community but that is the value of having every single person represented in the room because you don't know what you don't know but you have to know that in order yeah. to make sure that the right people are there who do know. That's yeah. great, sister. The, that's right. I think as to what Tad was saying is if those people above you are also making the decisions about what is a story that is being told, right, and controlling the narrative, that's also really dangerous. And, you know, I think we get stuck in, in higher ed in regards to that story of these, like, these urban, poor, black, Latino kids, you know, just trying to get out of their neighborhood, trying this so-called American dream, right? And that's the story that you hear. And it's like, who's making those decisions about that being the story? So it's very frustrating because that's not all of our stories. Some of us, but not all of us. Right, and And it's important to know that and important to characterize it as such because- I have said many times in the weeks following this piece when people ask, you know, what is it about this that's so important? And and we are educators. We are the watchdogs for our community. And if in a state like Colorado, you can exist in a bubble of a 70% white population where your neighbors are white, the people who go to church with are white, your colleagues are white, everyone at the grocery store is generally white, then what you are getting in terms of education about other communities is what we tell you on the news And if all we have on the news is that someone got shot and that someone's getting deported, then that is the education that you have. That is the the width of your understanding about our communities. Yeah. Well, of course, you're going to have a prejudice if that's what we are teaching you or telling you or making you believe is is the contribution that our communities bring to the fabric of Colorado. Yeah. But that just isn't the case. And in that case, we truly have failed at doing our jobs. Yeah. you know, I, I talked about in the email that, that I sent you, I talked a little bit about, just a little bit about the demographics, but you know, really, if you, if you look at the way that the, the demographics are, are headed in this country, I was just recently reading a report and it was saying that, uh, you know, over the, this next century, that there won't be one group that's really uh, major or dominant over the rest, but that there'll be this, you know, what they keep calling the plurality, right? But what they're saying is that by by 20... 40 or 2050 that latinas will be the majority of the plurality in this country and i think that that's that's really fascinating you know and so i guess part of it is for me and you know thinking about the the work that you're doing that you've committed to do you know through the media how is it that we um turn it around as a community so it's so it's not just about murders and it's not just about drug dealers and it's not just about people getting deported. Again, I, I would say that it's about that representation, not just, you know, in my case, when talking about a news organization, not just at the reporter level, but up and down the decision-making ladder, especially in executive positions, especially in management positions. But what that requires, Dr. Ernesto, is retention, to be able to move people up and down those ladders who have shown their commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Problem is, in a newsroom like the one I was in, and what I'm learning is 
a lot of newsrooms across the country because this is a very shared experience, more so than I even knew before the piece came out, certainly. The problem is that these newsrooms are comfortable for a certain person and not comfortable for others. We are not unique, Kristen, Sonia, and I, the three who were let go in the last year from Nine News, we are not unique in not staying. Although it wasn't our choice, what is not unique is that others before us in terms of journalists of color don't stay and do leave at the time their contract is done or do leave at the first opportunity that presents itself because it isn't a comfortable space to stay. However, the newsroom does have the capability of retaining people. They go to that newsroom in Denver to stay, to make their careers there, to live their lives in that community. So there is the possibility of retention. It's just, it's retention of a certain kind of person who does well in that newsroom. So there has to be a greater priority on everyone being made to feel heard, welcomed, comfortable, understood, and elevated and empowered to continue doing work there. The fight is hard enough to do the jobs that we do. Journalism is not an easy field. Reporting is not an easy job to do. And all of the you know, producers, executive producers, the editors, photographers, everyone who works in, you know, under the umbrella of a newsroom, these are very grueling hours, very hard to be constantly stressed every single day on a deadline-oriented you know, lifestyle. There are no holidays off. There are four months of the year you literally cannot take time off because of sweeps months. I mean, it's you really have to be very committed to this job and burnout is a real thing. So the fight alone just to do the job well is hard. If the fight is also added to by a whole nother fight of just trying to get stories that you care to tell that make the job worth doing out the door and on TV, and you know you'll fail at that, that fight, at least half the time, if not more, you're talking about earlier burnout and less buy-in to stay in those places that desperately need reporters like us to stay in the room and do the work. But both of those fights combined, it's extremely emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally draining. And you will see people choose to go to places where they know they will either get a shot at a different career or at least be more elevated in a different newsroom. And, and not having us in the room means there is no one to elevate because we didn't stick around long enough to earn that. Yeah. The other piece of that is that, I mean, you may have, you may have stuck around, but it was never going, it was never a possibility. It was never right. going to be offered, right? You were always going to be right. uh, just, you know, just there. And right. so, I mean, I've, I've seen that. I mean, that, that's certainly in, in the, industry that I've chosen to be in in higher education that is absolutely real you know yeah. um it's just you know a lot of us will all we will be our teachers our professors and not that there's anything wrong with that but it does limit you know because I hear administrators say all the time that you know recruiting students of color is more expensive than recruiting white students and I'm just like how 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 can that be but I've come to the conclusion that it's more expensive because they don't actually commit to it. It's like when you do something halfway, it sometimes it does end up being more expensive because you don't really, then you have to go back and fix all these things that you could have done right the first time, you know? And so I, I yeah, I, I see the same thing. Yeah. I see, I see the same thing happening. It's sad. 
I, I don't know, I, Alex. I think that's the nature of a systemic. <laughs> that's the nature of a systemic problem, though, right? That it does seep into all kinds of organizations in the same ways. That's why so many industries, I think, can see the similarities to what I'm talking about, and to you know whatever industry there. And this isn't just a news organization problem. This is a problem in so many industries and for so many people because you know the fabric of what we're built on is a systemic racism problem yeah so oh go ahead alex no i was just gonna say just listening because i find this all like fascinating i have like a million questions it's fascinating because i think one of the things that we've been talking about a lot this year is leveraging our power as a community right and so when you're talking about those who are gatekeepers decision makers right how is it that we're getting we this collective latino we right how is it that we're gaining access to those areas where they are making the decisions right and in media i'm not i don't know so well but when i think about who owns then the news station who who, who owns the papers and and you know, you were talking about Westward, like who owns that medium in order to decide what's going on? And is it demographics? Is it budgets? Is it ad buys? Like, and are we then as a community being seen as a powerful demographic economically in order to be able to leverage that power? Those are all really good questions. (laughs) I mean, one of the things, I was just participating in a webinar the, the other day and one one of the people that was speaking, he sort of spoke to some of the points that you were just asking. What he said was that there are more uh, Latinos in the United States than there are people who live in Canada or Australia. He was also saying that if you just took our gross domestic product, that we would be like you know in the top ten of, of the world in terms of in terms of countries. There, there was something I read not too long ago, and I know I did. I'm just looking at this email that I sent you last night, Lori, and it, it does say it talks about this. Latinos are massive online consumers of yeah. information, right? With with the phones, I mean, we're the number one, or we were before the pandemic, anyways. The number one, we may still be actually, a movie going population, you know, in the country. I mean, it, there's just all of these little pieces that that fit together and i i find it really interesting right and i I think that this totally fits in to what you've been talking about laurie this past election where everybody all of a sudden is like whoa wait a minute latinos where did these guys come from like what what happened how who are they that's my favorite question in any news in any news article who are they and I'm like, are you guys, are you guys freaking kidding me? <laughs> Who are we? And so as I was reading the the article. In many about, cases, we're the people who were here before you got here. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were like, hey, what's up? <laughs> yeah, no, we we've been here. Who are you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no, I think I think all those things are true. I guess part of my question is, Lori, you know, as a professional journalist, right? What role do you think that community level media or journalism plays? I mean, there's certainly with YouTube and Facebook and all this, there is a total democratization of the ability to make media, uh, not so much the ability to promote it or to get a whole bunch of people to listen to it, but you know, 
I, I, I don't know. What do, you, what, what do you think about that? In terms of us, I guess, controlling where we would put our own content if we wanted to? Where we would put it or even, even create it. You know, like I appreciate like as a professional, right? And I understand the difference between a, a professional and, you know, somebody who's, you know, not a professional, right? Doesn't necessarily have the training or, or whatever. Is any of the onus on, on us as a community to create content? That's, that's actually what I'm talking about is to create content about the news or the things that are happening. I think that that exists though, right? I think that th that exists independently if you want to be in, you know, somebody who takes on this role of doing it themselves and creating their own, you know, production company or starting right. a podcast or doing yeah. something as on a YouTube channel. But also there's Telemundo, Univision. We exist in Spanish radio. We exist on, you know, Spanish stations. Um, I, I think like you said, it does go back to where our where is the Latino community getting their news from in the first place? Are they buying in that much to Spanish channels, let alone English channels, especially yeah. English channels that don't represent them? Yeah. Um, and if not, where are they getting their news? And a lot of that is online, on social media platforms. Is it reliable all the time? Maybe not, which is why I think you're, you're right, that there probably is a better space for people who do it and do it well to find those communities where they're at and help direct them with some serious fact-based um, news. But I think that that's sort of a development that that we haven't turned that corner yet to meet the community where they're going. So there is sort of a, a gap, but TV has not met its best next um, competitor in terms of, you know, there's one space where we all go to on our phones or on our computers to get our news. There's a lot of options, but I don't know, you know, if, newspaper then entered radio then entered tv then entered the internet i don't know if this space of the internet has been monopolized by something really really good doing it really really right we're yeah. still trying to figure out just as a news business period how to make sure that you're going to this one place to get your most reliable information social media right now has taken that monopoly but again that leaves a lot of room for truth to be smeared or to be different depending on which site you're looking at. So I, I don't think that there is a great place for the Latino community to go to get their information just yet, but I don't think there's really a great go-to place for anybody to get their information just yet if you're not getting it from TV or from an app that you trust. None of us is all going to the same app and that's, that's an open space for somebody to do it right. I just don't know that anybody is doing it the best yet. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right about that, yeah. Yeah. Especially when it comes because I know we've always seen, heard where people say, "Well, I read it on X Y Z, you know, on the internet," and it's like, "Well, how credible is that?" Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, just because you saw it or read it, it's like I tell my kids: just because you saw it on the internet doesn't mean that it's true, right? And and I think that happens across the board with the adults. I mean, yeah. a lot of times too. I think we're taking in like, "I saw it on the internet." as like a headline and like the two lines that live underneath the article. But like, what, how much is the buy-in of like, let's click it and actually find out what that headline means. So you might've seen it on the internet and you're actually relaying exactly what you saw. But headlines are one thing and the body of an article or the content of a story when you hit play can be very different than what the headline was just sold to you as. Yeah. And I'm super careful with my clicks, right? Like, I don't want to just be clicking on stuff and people- Are you just going to go through clicking click. everything? I do not. <laughs> <laughs> 
Alex is like, I'm going to get this algorithm. She doesn't go uh-huh. and starts clicking everything. Uh-huh. She's like, I'm not going to let this be manipulated. If I click that's on right. this, I'm going to hear about I it. I do not click on anything that says like, you know, Kardashian or like Meghan Markle, right? I do not click on any of that stuff. Smart. <laughs> I've got to take a page out of your book because I'm getting all kinds of weird suggestions. My thing doesn't, my phones don't know what to make of me. Who is this girl? Sometimes she's incredibly educated and other times she is looking up trash. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. I've been there one o'clock in the morning. I'm mm-hmm. just like, yeah, you know what? Boom. Let's see what this let's see what this really says. Yeah. That really- <laughs> uh, what did happen to that girl and her boyfriend? I can't believe they're broken up. You know? <laughs> I'll be paying for that for weeks. You know, the one I really love is like, see the stars like 20 years later. You know, they're like, oh, what do they look like now? And then you've got a virus, like, because you decided to click into it. So, yeah. Right, right. Not yeah. I ain't gonna lie. I always look at those ones. Mm-hmm. And you know, what- as I get older and then I can't see so great and I don't have my glasses on, then I'm like, is, is this <laughs> they still look the same to me. <laughs> yeah. My 14-year-old the other day wanted to take this, one of those personality tests online. And so, and I don't know why she asked me, but she was like, is it okay if I do this? And I said, well, it's okay if you do this. I said, but I need to explain to you what's actually happening with this so that you understand, you know? And so we had this whole conversation about algorithms and collecting and data points and all this other kind of stuff. And I was like, okay. I said, do you get it? And she said, yeah. And then she took the test. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, okay. As long so as you know. <laughs> that's 10 minutes of both of your lives. You'll never get back. She's, she's still taking the test. She was too. She was like, yeah, dad. Okay. Yep. All right. Now let me find out what personality I have. <laughs> You know, Lori, I really appreciate you coming to to talk to us. I, I really do. I um yeah, I was I was quite struck by the story, you know, and just when placed in the context of all of the things that are, that have really taken place in in the last year, I think it's easy for us as a community to overlook these these individual stories, right? Because, you know, sometimes we are looking at the big picture, but what we forget to, or we fail to sort of remember is that each one of these little stories is, is part of the groundswell that leads up to the to the big picture, you know? And so, I mean, if we're talking about media and we're talking about the way that we're being um, represented in the media, which is a huge topic, right? But we overlook the story of three Latina reporters, you know, who are dismissed in a year you know, from a from a TV state from a Denver TV station, right? Because I know that Colorado is, you know, uh, like you said, seventy percent white, but Denver has a huge Chicano population. Absolutely, it has a deep history in Chicano uh, movement work, right? I mean, it's where the Crusade for Justice is from. I mean, there's all kinds of things that went down in Denver, yeah. you know, and so I mean. You know, how is it? I mean, the, see, that's the thing is that we're constantly, lots of times in our community, we're like, well, th- they have to do a better job. Well, they have to do a better job, but we also have to do a better job supporting and protecting the people who have gotten into the positions uh, that they're in, you know, particularly if they really are delivering for the community. I mean, if they're really delivering for the community, 
then, you know, the community has to deliver for them too. Because media in this country is not a one-way street. No. And that's the other reason why I really wanted you to come too, because I think that we have to be responsible to the media. It's like when people say, oh, the union doesn't do anything for me. And it's just like, well, you are the union. <laughs> you know, like literally you're a member of the union. So if the union is not doing anything for you, maybe that means that you're not doing anything for you. But I think it's true of, of media too. I, I do. I think it's true of newspapers. Oh, poor newspapers though. Uh, if they can try that. to figure out how to put it, you know, in a great way digitally, they may be able to survive. But there, you know, there goes again with with wondering who's going to be able to master yeah. being the go-to online. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, it, it absolutely is. It's it's um it's a relationship yeah. between you know media and the community. And I saw you know the effectiveness of journalism in Denver more than I ever. Um, have seen it before in my short career, you know, five years in just the last year when I saw that our communities were struggling, especially served by um, health, uh, public health clinics, community um, health clinics during COVID when it first started. I mean, I, I remember talking to a doctor at a, a community health clinic that's made up 90% of Latino undocumented immigrant patients, um, somewhere in like the 5,000 you know, range of patients who rely on that clinic in a very Latino community area. Uh, they had gotten by May something like 37 COVID tests yeah. by May the doctors didn't even have enough testing to test their staff, um, let alone the community. And we're wondering why are cases, you know, rampant in these in these yeah. places? When are we dying, right? Exactly. And in doing stories on that and highlighting the places all across Colorado that were being neglected in, in huge ways, um, the the state was calling me asking, where were you? What were the zip codes that you were in? Who should we give testing tests to? Where do we direct our resources? Right. By the summer, they that same clinic had so many tests that they opened up a public drive-through because they were being so inundated with tests to right the wrong of the last few months. Yeah. I mean, that kind of work of bringing something to attention and, and then having it answered, that's the power of media if we're right. in the right places asking for the right things and holding the right people accountable fast That's forward right. a year to covid uh rather vaccine clinics and i learned that a giant vaccine clinic that's supposed to be for underserved communities in a predominantly Latino area, doesn't have any Spanish speaking resources on site. No Spanish yeah. speakers, nothing translated, no information on the radio in Spanish, completely unacceptable. Do a story on it, got in a little trouble, but the end result of it was that that, that health partner righted all of those wrongs. I got them somebody to help translate the radio station into Spanish. Every sign was translated. Every form was translated. There were interpreters in the parking lot, all the way up to getting your shot and getting back out to your car Bam. at the follow-up vaccine clinic it, within a month. And we did a follow-up story on that. That was actually my last story at nine, was getting to see the progress that this clinic had made with the help of getting called out and needing to make it right before their next clinic. And they did, and they made it right, you know, more than I could have imagined, but they welcomed me back to do a follow-up story on the changes that they had made and the updates that they had made after being told you have to do better. That yeah. is the power of good, involved journalism. Yes. You can see, let me say that there's a problem. Now, if you want me to do a follow-up, show me a solution and I'll and I'll talk about that too. And that that is, 
so important that we are in those spaces to be able to see results like that or to be able to require results like that. And that does, it takes a relationship between the media and the community that we're talking about. Yeah. But again, we have to be in the room willing to make that relationship happen. Yeah, you should be proud of that, Lori. That's Thank good. you, I That's am, good I'm work. so proud of that. Yeah. My, so where my... are you, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was just wondering, because you said you were in Dallas. So what are you doing in Dallas now? Well, my family's in Texas. It's quite hard to pay rent when you don't have <laughs> salary. Yeah. So when I knew my contract would be up um, the first week of March, I was out of Denver a week later, ended my lease. Right. And yeah, I've been in Texas ever since. I wrote the piece in a couple of days once I got back to Texas, I locked myself in a room and rode away before I lost my nerve. Um, and then, yeah, since it came out, it's been two weeks. And it dealing with the fallout has actually been, you know, a full-time job. I'm still waiting on my time off because I'm I'm gonna get it. I want to sleep, but no. I mean, this has just been too incredible of um of an outcome to you know to to turn my attention away from everything that the piece has garnered. I I didn't expect that in a million years, but I'm incredibly grateful to now get to be part of a larger, very important conversation about representation and what that means for our communities and for for newsrooms outside of Denver. Yeah. I think it was very brave of you to write it. I really do. It's taken a chance. I mean, it, it is. Walking the walk, right? Yeah. It's not just about the talking, it's the walking. Yeah. I mean, and that's that's also, I mean, you know, that's another reason why I reached out because I've taken chances like that. I've been around people who've taken chances like that. And one thing I do know is that the more people who step up and also say, hey, what this person said, it makes it more acceptable, right? Absolutely. I mean, if it's just one person saying it, then everybody's all like, yeah, whatever, you know, they're just mad, right? Mm -hmm. But if it's 10 people or a hundred people, you know, or 2000 people or a hundred thousand people saying it, right? Then, then it's public opinion. That's actually what I was preparing myself for before the piece came out was being okay with it just being a stepping stone for somebody else in the future. I didn't think that there would be this much buy-in to my initial piece, but I was okay in preparing myself to be okay with a risk like this because I was hoping that if someone down the road, even a month from now or you know later this year or this time next year, unfortunately experiences something similar, that they'll have my piece to say, okay, well, somebody else had this happen. A, I'm, I know I'm not alone, but B, now I feel like I have the courage to also do this yeah. and add to that case, I, I didn't expect as much buy-in uh, right away as I got. And, I'm, and I owe a lot of trailblazers before me for being so well-received in this time because there are many people before me who have done or would have done something like this and not you know, received the support certainly, but also just the, the trust that what I'm saying is true. Yeah. And and I think for us and we were talking about like what we can do as a community to leverage this power, right? I think I think this is it. Amplifying, spreading the story, controlling the narrative. Like I know we go back to that a lot, but it's really that like you being able to tell your story in your words. My uh first journalism uh teacher was a woman named Louise Werbel, and she was the advisor for the uh, community college newspaper that um that i that i worked for louise uh, always told us that the uh, primary responsibility of 
any journalist is to uh, afflict the comfortable and to comfort the afflicted. I have uh, always believed that that is, that is the truth. And, and I have always really believed that the majority of other people who become journalists also believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's why they become journalists because in their hearts, they're crusaders. And so they see this as a, uh, as a way of, of crusading. And I think that, um, you know, that's really important. And uh, Lori, I, I see this uh, happening. I, I really wish you the, the best. And, and I have no doubt that, that this is going to turn out uh, well for you. You know, I think it's just, um, yeah, it's one of those, it's one of those rides, like you, you pay your money and now you're on the roller coaster. And so you're just going to have to hold on to the bar and see where it ends. I'm holding on tight. Yeah. All right. Well, that's good, sister. We appreciate you being here with us today. Thanks. Thank, Thank you. you so much for making time to have me. I really appreciate it. I love this conversation. Yeah. Really fun yeah. getting to I'd love to, to like follow up in a couple of months and see where you are too. Cause there are other couple pieces within what I read that really like spoke to me. Like when you were talking about like how you were told what your look was supposed to be, right? The way that you wore your hair. That Yeah, that's been a great one too, especially just to get to help educate people about identity, you know, or um, mm-hmm. the professional way that America has gotten to tell, you know, different cultures to look um, yeah. instead of accommodating right. that professionalism isn't just white professionalism. Um, right. So that sparked a lot of really interesting conversations because it isn't about me being picky about the TV industry telling me how to look. It's much deeper and more important than that. And yeah, that that matters a lot to be not deemed not professional based on a white perspective of what professionalism is. Yeah. yeah. This is the reality dysfunction.